Good Friday is a most difficult day, perhaps the most difficult of Holy Week. And I think it's especially difficult if we look at it through the eyes of the disciples. And that's what I really want to beckon us to do, is to stay in the story. I think this takes immense restraint. This takes a lot of discipline not to sort of rush forward, sort of yeah, 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 away past Good Friday, Easter Sunday. I want us to stay in the story. I want us to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. I think that's important. And if we do that, I think we're forced into a very honest admission that we do not know what is next. We just don't know. On Good Friday, uh, we see our Lord and our teacher, who was once authoritative and wise, uh, now broken, now humiliated, now mocked, now despised, beaten, and eventually dead. The servant God who won't save himself, this strangely silent Messiah. Got a few people here. I have to wonder what unavoidable and heart-wrenching questions the death of Jesus provoked in the disciples. I mean, fundamental things like, so I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was the Lord. What happened? Were we fools to believe? What have the last three years with this man, what have they come to? Have they amounted to anything at all? Or is all that just washed away now, right? All our hopes have died. All our faith has died. Now, my suspicion is that some of you have been beset and beleaguered by these questions in your dark hours. You can identify someone with this. But I think there's an even deeper uh, and more unsettling and even a terrifying questions that lie underneath those. And here's what they are. So, okay. Uh, Descend death and, and just human nature, is that the final say? Is that it? Do the world, the flesh, and the devil, are they now our masters? Is that it? Is this our collective end? Some other folks. Those are hard questions, and they certainly lead us to points of fatalism. I had a really dear friend. Uh, years ago, when the Lord of the Rings movies came out, if you guys recall that, she had not read the trilogy. So she was encountering these films at, for the first time, that story for the first time. And she watched The Two Towers, okay? And if you know how that one ends, at the end, things, it leaves with a lot of, it ends with a lot of tension. The conclusion is not clean. All seems pretty lost. It's sort of like the death of hope. So that, she finishes with that movie and she literally in tears says, the story can't end this way. It just can't. The story can't end this way. Flannery O'Connor has this to say, there is something in us as storytellers and as listeners that demands the redemptive act, that demands that what falls at least be offered the chance to be restored. I think that's what my friend was experienced. The story can't end this way. It can't end this way. It's too tragic. Good Friday, this night, is one of disorientation. Absolutely. One of, I would say, abject shock and a strong emerging grief. Again, stick with the disciples. Who could have seen this coming? What 
happened? They have to be wondering this. What happened? The death of God? That's incomprehensible. It's just beyond our sight. But in Gethsemane, the light begins to fade. There is confusion. There's betrayal. There's human avarice. There's deception, shock, disorientation. It's all there. And Gethsemane is only the beginning of the road that goes to Golgotha. Jesus sets his face like flint, and he embarks upon that road. Where Jesus was going, no one could follow. On Good Friday, our Lord heads for a very distant horizon that we simply cannot see. We come to the end of our understanding. We come to the very end of ourselves when God goes out of sight. And I think that's part of the point. Things go dark. And there's no denying on Good Friday. There's no denying that. And there's no reframing that to put a good face on it. There just isn't. Jesus literally journeys into the belly of the beast and we lose sight of him. Things go dark and fades to black. That is Good Friday. That is the story. But to be more specific, as we dive into John's text, uh, the story of our Lord's passion, John 19, it's pretty terse. It's pretty matter of fact. And I think uh, John lets the dialogue just speak for itself. There's not a lot of commentary on what's going on. We just get that dialogue that back and forth. On the surface, this story of Jesus's condemnation and crucifixion, it plays out like a tug of war between Pilate and the Jewish leaders with guess who in the middle? Jesus. It's a power struggle. Uh, will Pilate keep the peace or will the Jewish leaders get their way? It is a battle of will, politics, influence, its moves and counter moves back and forth. Pilate, we see him as someone who is political. We see him as someone who's indecisive, superstitious, and I'm pulling on a lot of the gospel stories here. He's seemingly sympathetic to Jesus and also somewhat guilt-ridden. The Jewish leaders are savvy. They are unyielding, very tenacious, and they are murderous. They have done their homework. They can't crucify someone. It's against the Jewish law. You can't do that. And they, what they want to do is they want to put Pilate in a position to handle their dirty work. So they use the threat of treason to corral Pilate into a difficult position. They put Jesus against Caesar. Who's, who's the king, Pilate? So Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus but he also doesn't have the courage or the conviction to defy the masses. He's reluctant. But in the end, he ends up being a shrewd and pretty pragmatic politician. In the end, he acquiesces and he gives in. He, he ends up being weak-willed in the end. Notice in this story, neither party, Pilate, the Jewish leaders, neither will take responsibility for the death of our Lord Jesus. Neither will. No one will take responsibility. This is a great injustice. I mean, take a man's life while simultaneously denying that anyone, you or anyone is responsible for it. It's tremendously unjust. But before we uh, pistol whip Pilate and the Jewish leaders, in reality, their sins are no greater than our own in some sense. If we think that we're nothing like the people in this crucifixion story, in this narrative, we deceive ourselves. I'm always reminded of that old hymn, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the truth is, yes, we all were. We all were there 
when our Lord was crucified, because Jesus bore the sins of the world upon his back, all of them past, present, and future. We all bear some culpability. But to be clear, Jesus goes willingly to Golgotha to be crucified. He chooses to drink the cup of suffering set before him. Jesus was not a victim. Jesus was a volunteer that has to be made clear. And his suffering was beyond, I think, our capacity to imagine. And I want to talk about the suffering of Christ here for the next few minutes. And I'm going to begin with the obvious. I'm going to begin with the physical suffering of Christ. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was flogged. Uh, what this means is he was beaten with a whip that had pieces of metal and bone in it, embedded in it. Sometimes you have to know the flogging alone would kill a person. It was that brutal. It turned your back into just a bloody pulp of exposed bone and sinew. And Pilate, remind you, did this to appease the Jews had him flogged. So some people didn't even survive that. Then there's the crucifixion. The Romans, oh boy, they were particularly cruel in devising a way to kill someone while also prolonging the agony of that person. A nail they would place through each forearm, here and here, also through the ankles, and a piece of wood was put underneath your hips. Okay? The, the awful thing, victims could survive hours, sometimes even uh, multiple days, as you baked in the desert sun, while basically you asphyxiate, you choke to death. You're hanging by the arms, trying to push up with your legs as your diaphragm is collapsing. Incredibly painful and torturous. But that wasn't everything. Uh, crucifixion was also an incredibly shameful and undignified way to die. Victims were often naked, um, as your body began to weaken, you often lost control of your bodily functions. So you urinated on yourself. You defecated on yourself. And the Romans took great pains to perform crucifixions in highly visible public places. And the purpose seems clear, to instill fear in the masses and to utterly humiliate and degrade those being crucified. So for those of you who've seen the Passion of the Christ, you remember how gratuitous and unyielding the violence in that film is. I do think the film captures the physical underscore suffering of our Lord. There's an insatiable brutality about how that is uh, depicted. The physical suffering of Jesus, he's, he's marred by the, uh, it, towards the end of the film, he's marred beyond recognition. You can't even tell who he is. And I think the physical suffering is an easy thing to focus on because it is so horrific. It's so over the top and it's so sadistic. But as I said, we're only talking about the physical suffering of Christ. That is only part of the equation. It only hints at the depth and the ugliness of our sin. How bad is sin? What's the cost? What are the wages? How deep does the rabbit hole go? Let's find out. I think, uh, well, I'll explain in a moment. So the scriptures know that Jesus dies first before the other two thieves. Uh, their legs are broken in order to hasten their death. In that instance, the two thieves. Why did he die first? Was it the flogging? Was it the beatings beforehand? The extra punishment? Uh, we don't know. Perhaps 
Was Jesus not as strong physically? Didn't have the constitution that the two thieves did? Why did he die first? And I'm going to go to Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, because I think it gives us a bit of a hint and a bit of an answer. I'm going to read that to you. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we, are, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus' suffering was far beyond mere physical suffering, as, as incredible and terrible as that is. Jesus suffered profoundly on a spiritual level, a level of suffering I think we can scarcely imagine. Let me talk about that for a minute. Jesus bore the sins of the entire world, past, present, future. That is enough to crush anyone in a nanosecond. That weight alone, inestimable. I mean, literally, he was crushed for our iniquities. How can anyone bear that spiritual reality? I, I can't, I literally cannot get my head around that. I can't imagine it. And he did it alone. And what I'm speaking of here is his God forsakenness. I believe that no person in human history has ever been more alone than Jesus Christ. Never. I don't know of a sadder moment in all of scripture than when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the Holy Trinity was probably never more poised to snap and come apart. That is a hell none of us will know, ever. Jesus died utterly and completely alone. And when he does, creation even revolts and protests. So all the, all the depths, all the full range of human suffering are known by Jesus. So any circumstance you find yourself in, you literally can say, Jesus understands. <laughs> nothing in the train of human suffering, nothing is unknown to Jesus. Nothing. So you're never alone in your sufferings. So there's always this incredible solidarity with Jesus that you have. I'm going to pull on Hebrews 4.15 here. We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus experienced the absolute worst physical suffering this world could offer, while also bearing the weight that we can't begin to imagine, the spiritual weight of the sins of the world and doing it solo. Jesus took on the full wrath of sin. Scriptures say, he became sin. He became a curse. He was cursed. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was cursed. He was marred beyond recognition so that we might be blessed and redeemed and restored. Now, God could have set up this world however he wanted. He could have written a story where no blood was need to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. He could have done that. God could have written a story where he didn't have to die in order to rescue anyone from perdition. He could have done that. And yet before God created anything, he looked down that corridor of time and he saw the faces of his children. He saw 
you. <laughs> he saw me. Scriptures say for the joy set before him, which is us, his people. Jesus the Son would bring us all home. And God chose, before he created anything in the universe, to die in the worst possible way, with the greatest shame and humiliation, with inhumane injustice and immense cruelty. And he chose to do it unswervingly, unflinchingly, and without faltering, setting his face like flint. This was the Trinitarian rescue plan set in stone before time. Why in the world did God do this for us? The answer is simple. Simple to say, hard to live. The answer is love. God showed us in this and continues to that there is no love without sacrifice. No love without sacrifice. Why the cross? Well, for the joy set before him, which was us. Augustine conjectured that Jesus would have gone to Calvary just for one person, just one soul. He would have done it, which is a really good thing because it only took that one sin to fix that chasm between God and us. Now, it's tempting, I think, to think otherwise, uh, as if like the real sins like war or genocide or sex trafficking of children, economic exploitation, so on, that those are the real sins. Those are the ones that count. But one sin is all it took to fix that chasm between God and us. On Good Friday, where Jesus is going, no one can follow. He walks this path alone, and he does it for our sake, for the joy set before him. He does this out of devotion to the Father and out of love for us, which are one and the same. He will fulfill the scripture and love us to the very end, as he did with his disciples. So even if we walk all the way to Golgotha with our Lord, as some of the women did, it becomes clear that we can't go any further. Can we follow him to our deaths? Yes, and some do that. But even if we don't desert Jesus and we choose martyrdom, where Jesus is going on Good Friday, we simply can't follow. We can only accompany him so far. Our Holy Week road, it ends here tonight. It ends. Jesus must walk the rest of the way alone, and he'll do it willingly for our sake. So our Lord died between two thieves amongst those who were actually guilty. And when he uttered, it is finished, the world uh, was never going to be the same. Human history changed forever. And finished, by the way, it doesn't mean it's over. What it means is that something has been brought to completion. That is what finished means. And that is why we call today Good Friday. That's why our gospel is good news. Where Jesus is going, no one could follow. He walked that path alone, and he did it for our sake, for the joy set before him, which is all of us. Now, this place, beginning to wrap up here, this place the disciples couldn't follow him was and is, as I said, the watershed moment in human history. This is where Jesus' suffering becomes our gospel. This is the place. He drank the cup of human wickedness and he drank it down to the dregs, all the way to the bottom. And he tore the veil of the temple from top to bottom, giving us a living picture of his body broken for us, showing us all the way of the cross, 
a path which tells us there's no love without sacrifice. There's no Easter without Good Friday. It just doesn't work that way. So Good Friday, uh, if you're not catching on to this, Good Friday leaves us, I think, in immense tension. Immense tension. Again, the trail we've been following so closely during Holy Week, so carefully, it stops cold tonight. Jesus disappears. We're in the disciples' shoes, which we're trying to stay there. Alongside the disciples, we ask, what do we do now? What's next? And that is the immense tension of Good Friday, which our human hearts just can't undo. We can't. Anthony Bloom, one of our brothers from the Eastern Orthodox Church, says this. The realm of God is dangerous. The day when God is absent, when he is silent, that is the beginning of prayer. That's a fantastic Good Friday prayer. So what do we do? We pray and we wait. We lean into the promises of Jesus, though we don't fully know what they mean. Okay? We lean in. We reflect on the path Jesus chose for our sake. We choose to feel the weight of his suffering and death, right? We grieve our sins and our precious Lord's subsequent death. We don't flee. We don't turn away from these things. We embrace them. We contemplate them. We hold them. And we glory in his cross as we marvel at his sacrifice.